This is Jose Casia, talking with Penny Rombacher. Her story of miracles in action takes you to some drastically different places, like Naples, a beach resort community in Florida, to places at the extreme in poverty like the garbage dump in Quito, Ecuador, and to the mountains of Guatemala in small rural villages. I've asked Penny to share her experiences in these very different places and how that led to the founding of Miracles in Action. So here we go. How are you, Penny? I'm doing great. Great. Um, I would like to share my story because uh, many people ask me, you know, what would motivate you to want to go from one extreme to the other? And <laughs> how did that lead to something I call my happy list? And it's really what started Miracles in Action was the development of a happy list. What mm -hmm. made me happy? And why, and why, why was that? Why you you decided to to make a happy list? Um, it it happened when I actually had breast cancer at um, age thirty eight. Um, I was working in a very stressful job. Mm -hmm. I worked for Marriott and was in hospitals and their kitchens, and uh, it was just a lot of hours, sixty seventy hours a week. Wow! And the stress was intense, uh, to say the least. Um, I wasn't really happy with the job because of the long hours and I had mm -hmm. no um, time for myself or time for yeah. other things. It was all about uh, working for corporate America yeah. and trying to get those meals out for mm -hmm. patients. What was, what was the thing that makes you stressed? Give me an example of that. Because I, I, I don't know. I can imagine uh, like what it could be. Um, well, it was those phone calls you would get um, from time to time that would be Um, the administrator of the hospital would like to have um, lunch for eight people mm -hmm. in his office and he's waiting for it. Can you get it here in 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, gee, there's a banquet fairy here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that makes these meals appear. <laughs> and it was just the long hours and having difficulty filling um, staffing needs. Mm -hmm. um, It was constant turnover of staff. Oh, okay. Really tough. At the same time, um, as I was working this big job, um, I was also um, building a house. It was a beautiful house mm -hmm. in Pompano Beach, Florida, on the water, one of the intercoastal waterways. Mm. And the um, partner I had um, was another stressful, high-intense <laughs> kind of person who was career oriented and he loved his toys he had um he was a mechanical engineer so uh -huh. toys were his love and he had yeah. the all the toys you can imagine a little Cessna airplane um the boat out back of the house um he had the Lotus car that was a sports car <laughs> um all those fun things yeah. which he never had time to use <laughs> <laughs> Stress, relationship if stress, I, I can relate to that. I, I can understand that, how, how it can be so stressful, yeah. Yep. And we were building this house on the water, which would be anybody's dream to live on an intercoastal waterway, mm -hmm. boat out back, a swimming pool. But it was so difficult to do that at the same time as working this stressful job. And... At the same time as recovering and 
going through treatments for chemotherapy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. You were you were going through through all that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that the amount of things going on that you had. And at the time that I um, was going to go through my first chemo, I spoke with my partner and I said, "Would you be willing to go with me for my first chemo?" You know. I just don't know whether I'm going to be able to drive home. I don't know how I'll feel. Um, and I'm kind of scared. And yeah. he looked at me and he said, no way. No way. I can't be around sick people. I can't be around you when you're sick. I can't be around anybody who's sick. And <laughs> he said, no, I'm not a warm and fuzzy guy. I'm an engineer. Um, I'm black and white. And... I'm not going to be turned into a warm and fuzzy guy. So, you know, you're on your own. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Thank God for mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> your family's always there for you at these times that you're in real need, or most families are. Yeah. And that's actually who came over and was with me on that first chemo. And, and I found out that I could get through it. I was strong. Um, I also um, continued to work through the whole thing mm -hmm. because I wanted to live a normal life, what was normal for me. Yeah. And didn't want people coming up to me and saying, oh, how are you feeling? Reminding me that I had the big C. Yeah. And so it was important to me to carry on and continue working that job. So I didn't take any time off. Wow. Well, just by that, I can tell you are a very strong person because not not everyone can do that. Uh, it's just like, I guess that emotionally, it's really drowning, like knowing that you have something that um, it's really dangerous for, for your life and decide to keep going with your life. That needs a lot of courage. So, yeah, I, I mean, I know you for a long time right now and, and I... I have learned a lot of things from you and I and I be able to absorb many things and I keep like surprising me with more and more stories and that's that's why I'm excited about like hearing more about the happily so please keep going. Well, um there was a lot of change at that time. Um after I got through the chemo and radiation um and I had a good outcome and I had good health care which can't be said for everyone in the country or even everybody in the world. But um, I had a good outcome. And it was shortly after finishing up my treatments that um, I was told by uh, Marriott that I worked for for 15 years that they were acquiring another company and there would be this downsizing. And I was part of the downsizing after 15 years, mm -hmm. which was pretty shocking after somebody who was so dedicated and didn't take time off for their own cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I'm being laid off. Wow. Um, at first I was pretty bitter. I was pretty angry, but um, I figured there had to be a reason for it. And maybe there was a life beyond cancer, beyond mm -hmm. Marriott. And that I'd end up thinking of it as a blessing, that it was a wake-up call. It was my time to make change. And that is what happened. And what I did is 
I thought, I have to get away from my life so I can figure out what I want to do the second half of it mm-hmm. after cancer, after Marriott, after the stress. <laughs> and so I decided that I was going to do some traveling and I was going to go by myself uh, because people were all saying to me, oh, you know, you should get another job with anyone just to have a job to pay the mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, you should do this. You should do that. And I called them the shooters and they should on you. And <laughs> I didn't want to be shooted on. <laughs> I wanted to decide what was right for me. And I've always been someone who loved travel and I can learn from travel. Mm-hmm. I can um, be exposed to different lifestyles and different ways of um, thinking and living and different from my box that I was in at that time yeah, um, with the American dream and corporate America. So I took off for um, Australia and New Zealand and I was backpacking um, by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I was gone for three months. And during that time, I did everything from scuba diving mm-hmm. on the Great Barrier Reef to hiking up Ayers Rock and in the Outback. And you, you, you went there because of a reason, and specifically? Uh, sorry, I said, like, if you went there for a specific reason, what, what was, like, uh, the, this, what it led you to go there? Um, well, for one, I wanted to go to a place that travel would be easy as um, by myself. Mm-hmm. I figured if I was going on a first trip by myself, um, that being around English speakers would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, easy to get around um, with a lot of adventure because I, I love hiking and adventure. And the place that I really ended up loving the most was uh, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And I did some real long hikes for three days where you're out living in a, a cabin that's um, you rent a bunk in a cabin. Mm-hmm. You, you know, each day, Um, track with your own food and um, your own supplies. Um, it gave me a chance to really see nature and be around nature and not be around people who were going to tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was on a hike that I did in um, northern, um, it was Abel Tasman National Park. It's on the South Island of New Zealand, but on the north side. Mm-hmm. And Beautiful, beautiful park. Um, I was on this three-day hike, and I hiked along to a point, and it was where it hit the ocean, and there was a huge boulder there, and I went out and sat on that boulder, and I pulled out my journal and started to write, um, you know, things that I had been doing, thoughts mm-hmm. I was having, and I thought, you know, what was the day in your life that you were the happiest? You know, what were you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, what were the common threads about being happy and those days when you're feeling sheer joy? Mm-hmm. So in thinking about it, I started writing down um, what those things were. And it was, of course, family being important, mm-hmm. uh, friends and relationships, um, travel. Travel's always been high on my list. Um, being in nature, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I also love to learn. Um, I've always been a, a reader and someone who loved to learn new things, new skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was helping people. I went in to become a nutritionist and worked in hospitals for 20 years because I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. So um, feeling that sense of accomplishment that you've made a difference in people's lives, that was on my happy list. Okay, okay. I see a pattern already. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other list that I wrote was my unhappy list. Uh-huh. And I thought I had to, you know, know that list because obviously I needed more of the things in my happy list and all of the things on my unhappy list out yeah. of there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on my unhappy list, um, Marriott and my stressful job, uh-huh. working lots of hours, um, the partner I was living with and his not being a warm and fuzzy guy, not being there for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was one of the shooters. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the feeling healthy, you know, um, not feeling healthy and waking up in the mornings and feeling like you were going to throw up because of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So, Obviously, healthy was on my happy list, and unhealthy um, was on my unhappy list. I also um, had the ball and chain of that house because it required me to work the big job. Mm-hmm. So it was um, a lot of weight and pressure on me. So it was on my unhappy list. It wasn't mm-hmm. giving me any joy. It was at that point that I sat there and wrote in this journal a commitment list that when I returned, I was not going to be pressured by what my partner wanted. Um, I was going to be doing an implementation of things that made me happy. Um, So I was going to sell the house. I was never going to work for Marriott and I was going to leave Bill. Okay. So at this, at this time you were unemployed and you were still with your partner and you were still building the house with him and you decide you were gonna give up all those things. Absolutely. And And they were things that weren't important to me anymore. mm -hmm. You know, in facing death with having breast cancer, you really do think about what's important, what should we value? Yeah. And it's not those material possessions, it's not those relationships where the person is not there for you yeah that you can count on them you were really scary about about that there was a point like you thought that you were not going to make it or something like that um i guess i didn't worry so much about that i more was concerned about how was i going to do it mm-hmm. um, i knew i could be potentially influenced by bill when i returned and by Marriott making me a nice big offer, which in fact they actually did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I felt strongly about writing that commitment, those mm-hmm. three commitments to change my life. And I remember going after I finished that hike to an internet cafe and I wrote to a friend of mine 
and she knew my life and mm-hmm. that I was very unhappy at that point. And I said to her, you know, I went on this hike and I wrote this happy list and I'm going to change everything when I get back. And then I thought, you know, that was a really momentous location Mm -hmm. where I was sitting and writing in my journal. So I looked at my hiking trail map and I looked at where was I sitting? And it was right where the ocean came along the trail. And I looked it up on the map and guess what the name of that place was that I was sitting writing this list. Tell me. It was called Separation Point. (laughs) Like you, it was meant to be, yeah. <laughs> wow, that that what do you what did you feel in that moment when you saw that and you, and you saw the name? What it came to your mind? I was just like reconfirming that I was going in the right direction, <laughs> right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an aha moment, <laughs> yeah. And the concept of the happiness, have you? hear it or read it in in some place or it was something that just came out when you were like doing the trails and and all that I think it came out of um knowing that I did those trails and I went away for so long um to redesign my life to reinvent it and how would you do that unless you really knew what is your goal Mm -hmm. and I think our goal should be to be happy. Yeah, yeah, I think so too, yeah. I think that we came to this world to be happy. That should be the main thing. Um, yeah. And most of us don't sit down and, and figure out what makes us happy. We make assumptions. We think, you know, having what the neighbor has or yeah, yeah, a house yeah. or a relationship that we're really wanting or a car or material things will make us happy and then when we get them it doesn't happen yeah follow follow the the path that society tells you what to do and basically till tick all the boxes that basically society tells you that you're supposed to be doing right absolutely i always recommend to people that if you have a chance to write your happy list go away just be with yourself um, don't let others influence you and being in nature is a great way to do that mm-hmm. because the birds aren't telling me what to do and <laughs> the trees aren't whispering the answers <laughs> it's just it's just you yeah and what happened after that well after my uh three months there i returned to um Pompton beach florida mm-hmm. and i did some more traveling Um, I, um, told Bill that I was going to be, um, leaving him and selling the house. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do career wise, but as I say, Marriott offered me a job and I turned them down. It was to be, um, food service director at a 700 bed hospital in Mm. South Miami and talk about stress. (laughs) That would have been over the top. And I didn't have a job, but I had enough savings that I could, you know, not worry about it. Mm -hmm. And while I was on that very long flight to Australia from Los Angeles, I had a chance to talk to the flight attendants on, on that flight. 
And I asked them what they liked about their jobs and what they disliked about their jobs. Mm -hmm. And they actually had a lot of good things to say about the life of flight attendants, how they got to travel and meet interesting people and see so much and meet um, so many people and cultures. And it just sounded like a really good job. And it was not one that I'd have to work, you know, that 70 hours a week and have the stress of people reporting to you and responsibility other than showing up for flights and being (laughs) nice passengers. (laughs) Yeah, it seems totally different and not as stressful as your uh, latest job, right? That's right. So... Um, I actually saw an advertisement that American Airlines in Miami was looking for for flight attendants. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm 42 years old. There's no way they're going to hire me. I'm too old. Um, I didn't speak another language um, other than Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was born in Canada. And um, I can say A, like the best of them. (laughs) So... um, I thought about that job and I thought, you know, that's going to meet my need to travel and mm-hmm. meet people. And I think I'm, I'm going to give that a try. So I went for the interview and actually they hired me right away because wow. I had a lot of experience in customer service and they were looking for people with that. Wow. Good timing. It's, it's actually a job that really, really opens your eyes to what's beyond the borders of the U.S. and the, the box that we live in mm-hmm. exposes you to all kinds of things. Um, even on layovers, we would see, you know, right out in front of a Hilton or a Hyatt or a Marriott hotel when you're staying in this nice, beautiful, luxury hotel, um, there are children outside and they're hungry and mm-hmm. they're with bare feet and begging in the streets um, it was astounding for me living now in Naples, Florida. I moved where my parents were living mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going from one end of the spectrum in a beautiful resort beach community to um, places like um, Quito, Ecuador, where there were children in the streets right there on our layovers that you would see. Mm. And I went into another internet place. (laughs) A lot happens in internet cafes. (laughs) And um, met a Canadian woman who was helping the children who live at the garbage dump in Quito, Ecuador. Uh And I said, no way. They can't live in the dump. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, actually they do. And look at these photos. So I looked at her photos and I saw these shacks made from garbage at the dump. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is awful. And she said, if you go and see this for yourself, she said, it will change your life. And that was my other epiphany moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It did change my life because I went back to Quito, Ecuador And a missionary that I had met over the internet um, who had projects at the garbage dump in Quito Mm -hmm. um, met me and my mother um, and he took us out to that garbage dump. Mm -hmm. And 
it was very eye-opening. Um, it stunk, it was flies, it was animals, rats, um, slime, uh, women climbing in the back of trash trucks to search for the freshest, newest trash coming mm -hmm. in um, with babies on their backs and no work gloves. Um, even babies are born at the garbage dump. And that wow. to me is astounding. Yeah. That a woman can give birth to a child. Um, in that environment, years. yeah. And and I'm curious, like you said that your mom was with you. How how did your mom ended up like going with you on this first trip? Um, well, mom always loved to travel. She was like me in that. And um, she was the person who taught me about giving and caring about others. And so I thought that this would be a trip that she would be interested in learning and, and mm -hmm. going and seeing. And I was right. She became my partner in making a difference at that garbage dump. Um, when we were standing there um, looking at all of this and smelling all of this, um, this little boy comes up and my mom pulls out a Hershey kiss. That's all she had in her pocket at the time. Mm -hmm. He hands him the Hershey kiss. And I take a photo and later on I see it and he's got a bloated belly from malnutrition, thin hair, all signs that I had seen um, in textbooks more mm -hmm. so than in hospitals because most children don't get to that state of that type of malnutrition mm -hmm. in hospitals. And it really touched my heart seeing that little boy and his photo. Um, also, the other thing that really impacted me is the missionary told me a story, and that was about a Christmas party that they do each and every year, mm -hmm. and hundreds of people come to the garbage dump for the Christmas party, and it's held at the garbage dump, which is kind of astounding, <laughs> <laughs> and they give out every, to every child gets to come up and pick a gift, mm -hmm. and Jerry says to me, this little boy, he says, I'll never forget. He comes up, hands me his voucher, and goes over and picks up a ball. And then he looks over and he picks up a blanket. And he's looking at both and he's looking at me. And he said, I said to him, I'm sorry, but you can only have one gift. Mm -hmm. And the little boy looked at the ball and he looked at the blanket and he started to cry. Yeah. And it was at that moment that he had to choose and the crowd was yelling, we want our turn, hurry up, decide. I can't imagine the kid like having to had such a tough decision, like going with what uh, his nature will be, like taking the ball and being a kid or a mature decision about like, I don't want to be cold at night. Yep. Wow. And you know which one he picked? I, I mean, I don't know. He picked the blanket because it's 9,300 feet elevation in Quito. And at night it gets very cold. And he would rather have warmth than a ball to play with. Yeah. And it was at that moment, I mean, I was just like, in tears and I just said you know I don't know how I'm going to do it 
but as God is my witness, I am making a commitment that I'm going to bring a ball and a blanket and shoes and clothes and whatever you need so that these children don't have to make that kind of decision. Wow. That they can have both. Yeah. And I had absolutely no idea I was going to do it, but <laughs> I just knew I had to. And that night, I'm lying at the hotel in my nice, crisp, clean sheets. Oh, God, I can't imagine how you, how you felt left at that. And it starts raining, and I'm thinking, I wonder where that little boy is now, the one that took the Hershey kiss, who just became my representative, my face on poverty, mm -hmm. the first face I've ever seen that was that impoverished. Um, and I thought, you know, where is he right now? And does he have warmth? Does yeah. he have a place to go? Does he have food in his belly? Which probably um, no. I, I felt pretty guilty lying there in comfort. And I just thought, what can I do? I'm just a flight attendant. Well, you figure you know, out, you figure <laughs> out, I know that you figure out. <laughs> I'm a pretty stubborn person when it comes to making up my mind and that I'm going to do something. So the next morning I went down to the manager's office, the general manager of the hotel. Uh -huh. And I told him about the garbage dump and what I had seen there. And he said, yeah, I know. He goes, it's really awful. And it's like that in many Latin American countries and other countries around the world. And he said, um, what can I do to help you? And I said, well, if I was to have flight attendants and crew members come in with bags and blankets and balls and clothes and shoes, would you be able to put them in a storeroom so that this missionary can come over and pick them up and then fairly distribute them to the people who live at the garbage dump. And he said, absolutely. I'll give you my best bellman. He'll be in charge of it. Uh, that way, nothing will happen to the items and it will be secure and safe until it's picked up by uh, Jerry, who will come and distribute it. So that's what we did. So by the next day, you already had a plan. I bet you spent the whole night thinking about how to, how to do something the next day, and you did it. Well, um, I went back to Naples, and Mom and I started collecting clothes and shoes and blankets and balls, and, <laughs> and we packed them into garbage bags, and we took them to Miami Airport, and I met with the managers at the airport in my department mm -hmm. of flight services. And I said, can we do this? Can I put these bags here and contact the crew and put a little note in their mailbox and say, Hey, would you be an airline angel and deliver a bag, you know, put it in the overhead bin and then mm -hmm. deliver it to the Hilton and then it will be safe in there and it'll be distributed at the garbage dump. So, um, I couldn't keep up with the demand for bags because every crew member, if there were not bags, they were coming to me and leaving a little note in my mailbox. There were no bags and I flew a trip to Quito. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good you know, response. That they could make their job make a difference. Yeah. Because of course. all the poverty and none of us knew what to do. Mm -hmm. And this could be something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's 
that's great but you, that the people respond so quickly and so good to to do something so i think that that's kind of like uh what it actually tell us like most of the people want to do something most they of do. the people want it they just don't know how to do it yeah and they they don't really even know what to do because um the problem seems so immense in yeah yeah, in yeah. countries that where do you begin mm-hmm. and so i always say you know if everybody did just a little bit um it would make a bigger impact um it could change the world if we all did a little something yeah it adds up yeah and what was then uh, what what did you do after that like we're not keeping be able to keep it up with the with the bags well one of the things that i did is i found out about a um charity started by another flight attendant mm-hmm. and she lead trips and um she would ask other flight attendants to also lead trips where we would pack extra bags and um take them to places like orphanages around the world um to garbage dumps i was the garbage dump queen <laughs> that was that was my <laughs> mission in life is to take people to garbage dumps and and give them shoes <laughs> and so um i joined that organization for about four years i was leading trips and taking crew members, pilots, wives, um, and even the vice president of American Air- Airlines in Miami uh-huh. um, to the garbage dump in Quito. And we would distribute the items. Um, Jerry would line everything up. And he didn't give it away for free uh, because I've learned something about giving away humanitarian aid. Mm-hmm. And that's if you give things for free, they're not as valued as if somebody paid a nominal amount yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah. It's also fairer um, because otherwise people will be grabbing and shoving and hurting other people mm-hmm. to get things. And they'll um, they'll not appreciate it and they'll feel reliant on you. Yeah. You know, they can't do things for themselves where if they buy it, even if it's just a small amount, they it leaves their self-esteem intact. Mhm. Yeah. His system was that everybody got a number and they would line up in their numbered order mm-hmm. in front of the distribution area. And that way there was no pushing and shoving because number one was going to go in first. Yeah. <laughs> and do the shopping and mm-hmm. you paid a dollar and for a dollar you got five, six, seven items, I don't remember how many. Mm-hmm. And you could pick through anything that was there. And then you got a gift for coming, which was either like a baseball cap, a bar of soap, a bag of rice, mm-hmm. something everybody got. Mm-hmm. And that way, the money that they made could be used for something to give back to their children. And so they set up a little lunch program where the kids who were there at the garbage dump waiting for their parents to pick through trash could come and get lunch. Mm-hmm. And it was paid for by the clothes money. Mm-hmm. Great. Oh, that that sounds like a, a a good way of like kind of like figure out how to structure like a good system, so they feel uh, that they are not like being looking down. I I I feel like um, self esteem is really important for 
for people who is in in, in those situations uh, for them to be able to like do more and, and 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 be able at some point to get out of that situation and improve their lives uh, yeah and so it was through um, different trips I took I went to more places than just um, to the garbage dump in in what in uh, Quito Ecuador mm-hmm during those four years, I actually, um, I went to, um, Jordan and delivered wheelchairs and things to, um, a Bedouin school. Um, I went to Argentina, uh, delivering also wheelchairs and to a little refuge program. We took, um, blankets and clothes. Um, I went to Bolivia, um, China, Mm. um, Mexico, um, quite a few places. And then it was then when I discovered that Guatemala had an even bigger garbage dump than the one in Quito, Ecuador. And a friend of mine who was a flight attendant said that she had read about it in a little mm-hmm. tourist magazine on her layover in Guatemala. And we were staying at a Marriott there. Um, different relationship with Marriott and when yeah. I was working for them. Um, <laughs> But the um, flight attendant said, you know, she learned about a project called Safe Passage where mm-hmm. an American uh, teacher started a school program for the children who live at the garbage dump. Mm-hmm. And that rang to me. I mean, it just made a whole lot of sense because the kids were never going to get out of the garbage dump by us just giving them comfort items. Yeah, of course. Uh, they needed an education. They needed a job. Um, they needed a, a way out of the garbage dump, not to end up having that be their life forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought education might be might be the answer there. So I flew down to Guatemala and I got in touch with her and I <laughs> met her at the Marriott and I had a meeting with the general manager of the hotel (laughs) and we started sending her supplies. And the thing she wanted the most was school supplies. Uh I thought was great Um, because she would give food bags out at the end of the month to all the children in the program who had good attendance and were doing well in school. So it became the child's job to go to school to earn food for the family. Wow, yeah. Sounds like a great, great idea. Yeah, good reward, yeah. Yep, they're earning it. It's not a handout. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that handouts don't work. Hand-ups work. Yeah. And this hand-up. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, uh, in what year was, was this? Um, I think it was about 1999, 90, might have been the year 2000 Mm -hmm. that I discovered, you know, this safe passage program. Mm -hmm. And actually for about four years or five years, we did um, a Christmas party for these kids because I had told the general manager about the Christmas party at the Mm -hmm. garbage dump in Quito. And he said, well, we can do a Christmas party. And I said, ooh, there's just really not a place to do it down there at the garbage dump. And he said, well, no, here at the hotel. Wow. I said, 
you open your <laughs> hotel to go to dirty children? <laughs> I said, they have lice, you know? It, it's, yeah. I couldn't imagine that he was going to do that. And he looks at me and he goes, I trust me, you'll clean them up. <laughs> <laughs> so guess what? We did. We went down with groups and we washed the kids' hair in lice shampoo and <laughs> They all got new outfits and new shoes and um, Clark Tours is a, a tourist bus company that takes uh -huh. tourists around. They supplied big buses for all these children. They took them from the garbage dump to the Marriott, three busloads full <laughs> of clean children. <laughs> <laughs> and how and do you make that connection? Like how do you end up getting that? Actually, it was the Marriott general manager at the hotel. Okay. He told me about this um, gentleman who was very um, giving and he thought that he might be interested in helping us out. And actually for years, he supplied us with um, coaster buses for our groups when we come down. Awesome. And he said, hey, it's the least I can do for all you're doing for my people. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that we had more, more people like him, more like uh, um, business owners. That look yeah, that it's also way. responsibility for big corporations to to help the impoverished because we can. I mean, yeah. we have the resources. Mm -hmm. So it leads me to what happened after this. Um, I got a little disillusioned with so many um, aid distributions mm -hmm. and really wanted to do something more in education and more in um, opportunities for a lifetime to get out of poverty mm -hmm. and what might that be. And so my mom and I were at the Marriott in Guatemala City mm -hmm. and I was talking with some staff in the business office and this woman is listening to my um, stories and what I was saying to them. And she was eavesdropping and her name was Helen and Helen turns to me and she goes, I was just listening to your stories. And she goes, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Naples, Florida. She goes, Naples, Florida. That's where I'm from. And I said, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that somebody from Naples, Florida was also in Guatemala. <laughs> So she said, well, our missions committee has built a school and it's going to be inaugurated tomorrow. And they're inaugurating it in honor of my husband, Jim Smith, mm -hmm. who was on the committee and was instrumental in the fundraising to build this school. And he passed away and he's not going to be there tomorrow, but he will be in spirit because mm -hmm. we're in the school after him. And I was like, wow. That is really cool. I said, can my mother and I come? <laughs> can we see what's happening and be there for this inauguration? So actually, that's what we did. And we went to the inauguration. We saw how happy the villagers were, um, the beautiful school that they had built, and that this village had had no opportunity of a school and getting an education. And this church had opened up that opportunity to them. Wow. So another aha moment. <laughs> <laughs> so they just invite you to join them just like that. And yeah. 
it put, planted a seed in my mom's brain in mm-hmm. her head. <laughs> and it was actually um, backing up just a little bit. Um, 9-11 happened while I was a flight attendant. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty traumatized by 9-11, as everyone was. Mm-hmm. But being a flight attendant and I actually knew some of the crew members um, because I had been based in Boston for wow. six And some of them who died at the trade center um, were flight attendants I had flown with. Wow. So that was just like one of the worst weeks of my life. Um, it was also the week that um, my mom, who was my best friend, mm-hmm. my partner in packaging up all this stuff and getting it down to the garbage dumps. Mm -hmm. Um, She was diagnosed with melanoma liver cancer. And the, the doctor said she had um, at best, she had three months. And I learned that the same week of nine 11. I mean, I just remember my, yeah. Having a meltdown. I mean, how could so many awful things happen in one week? Yeah. How was I going to deal with them? Um, but, you know, being the stubborn person that I am, yeah. <laughs> I went online and I looked up um, treatment for melanoma mm-hmm. and what research was out there. Mm-hmm. What clinical trials might there be mm-hmm. to give my mother more time? Mm-hmm. And so I found a uh, clinical trial at Thomas Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. And mm-hmm. I called the doctor and told him about my mother's case. Um, he said, you know, your mom sounds like a perfect candidate for this program. And he said, um, bring her up here. So my mom got enrolled in a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And that trial actually uh, she was the longest living person in that trial. Wow. And the the doctors worked her treatments around her trips to Guatemala with me because we were going regularly now to Guatemala. How regularly and, you were coming? Um, I would come every um, month, every six weeks. Um, so pretty regularly. Yeah. I, I had fallen in love with Guatemala and the people and... It's only a two-hour flight from Miami. <laughs> Convenient. Where, um, Quito is four hours. And, you know, <laughs> you have to go by that because um, if there aren't access for you to get to the programs that you want to continue being dedicated to mm-hmm. um, implementing, um, it makes it more challenging. It's already challenging enough. Yeah. Add in distance and hours traveled to get there and now with your mom and everything yes it made it more possible for her to go with me because it was only a two-hour flight Mm -hmm. um so during that time my mom actually um inherited some money from my grandmother when she passed Mm -hmm. and mom said you know i don't need anything i don't want anything with that money i have everything i want in life she goes I just want to do something for others. And I want to build a school like Jim Smith and uh, Maureen's Presbyterian church that had 
um, built that school. Mm-hmm. She said, I, I want to build a school. She goes, I'm going to give you that money so that when I die, you can build a school. And I was like, why are we waiting? Yeah. Let's do it now. <laughs> she said, you think we can? So I was like, hey, if they can do it, we can do it. <laughs> yeah. And I contacted um, one of the charities I knew about um, and spoke with Sue Patterson, who lived in Guatemala, and she was on the board for a charity that um, was working in rural Mayan villages. And I said, you know, Sue, do you know any villages that need a school? And she goes, oh, how many do you want? (laughs) (laughs) I said, how about one? (laughs) (laughs) And why why did you came to to Sue, like... uh... Uh, how do you, do you know that she will know? Um, well, she's been um, council general working for the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala. Oh, okay. And she was very tied into Guatemala, and she was now retired there. She also was the founder of a charity called Wings that teaches family planning and women's reproductive health. Wow. Um, so I figured if anybody knew the country of course, and yeah. help us do this, Um, it would be Sue. So uh, my mother actually uh, donated, I think it was about, um, it was $16,800. And that was for the building materials, Mm -hmm. the rebar and glass and cement blocks. Mm -hmm. Um, And the villagers did all the labor Mm -hmm. and the ministry of education provided the teachers Mm -hmm. and little village, um, just outside of San Martin, Hilo Tepeque, um, in a little village with, I don't remember, I think there might have been 50 families that lived there and they spoke Kachikel, which is one of the Mayan languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom and family and friends, we all went on the um, inauguration of that school and mom got to cut the ribbon um, we gave out shoes and backpacks to all the children. Um, Mom actually sewed the backpacks from donated Levi's denim. <laughs> she was a sewer, and she just loved the idea of giving them all a little personal piece of herself, which was a, a backpack. <laughs> wow. And we gave the school um, Spanish books and chalkboards and teacher materials and crayons, and it was mom's happiest day of her life she told me wow and she she saw how happy they were and yeah she said you know you didn't give me any grandchildren of my own so we just went and go went and found two thousand of them here in Guatemala (laughs) and we're starting with you know a hundred of them (laughs) right here in the school (laughs) wow and how long did it did it took you to to make that happen from the, the day that you decided to do it? Well, from the day that mom um, donated the funds to the day of um, completion, it was actually six months. Six months, so not that, not that much. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. It happens very fast. The big hindrance for most of the people is they don't have the resources of the mm-hmm. money to buy the cement and the building blocks. Wow. So that was the first one. That was school number one. It opened uh, January of 2005. Mm-hmm. 
And um, that was also our motivation for founding uh, a 501c3 charity. Mm-hmm. And um, mom named it. She said, I want this to be called Miracles in Action. And she said that was because she felt that a miracle had happened in her life to keep her alive so that she would be able to build this school. Mm-hmm. And she wanted miracles in the lives of the children who attended the school. Yeah, because she was already uh, three months after what the doctor said that he was not going to be able to make it, right? Yep. So um, we formed the charity and mom actually funded um, a second school, which had been started and the um, organization that was sending money for that school mm-hmm. um, stopped sending and stopped coming. So it didn't have a roof. It didn't have windows. Uh, it was still missing some vital things mm-hmm. before they could use it. So um, she paid $5,000 for the additional materials needed, and we had school number two. Mm. How, how, like how much time apart was this? Um, actually, on the day of the inauguration is the day that they took us into this village that mm-hmm. was, I don't know, a, a mile or so away or two miles away. Mm-hmm. Down dirt roads. I mean, you could never find these places on a map. <laughs> Although Google Earth is pretty good at yeah. <laughs> finding things these days. But there's like not a street address mm-hmm. for these places. Um, and so we had gone there on that same day. And that's when she found out what they needed. And it was um, in May when the school was finished. And mom and I came back and we were there for opening that school as well. Mm, cool. So in that moment, you didn't have the nonprofit yet, but you already um, built. We formed the nonprofit at the same time as we inaugurated school number one. Okay, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And how was that process? It was like something, again, something new to you and you just like figure out how to do it. <laughs> yep. Never done it before, but I asked friends who were really good at um, filling out paperwork and documents. And Mm -hmm. I, of course, had a fair amount of experience with leading trips and working in these countries. Um, So I at least had some resources and some people that I knew and articles that I could submit to say Mm -hmm. I had done humanitarian work previously. Mm And did someone else like uh, join you when you inaugurate the the schools? Um, There were quite a few people that had been on um, trips, like the one to the garbage dump where we took the kids to the Marriott for their Christmas party. And these um, couples that were participating in these trips um, went on the inauguration and they said, you know what? This makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to donate to a school as well. I want to participate in this. This this just makes too much sense to build schools and let these kids get an education. Yeah, because that, that was going to be my next question. Like, when did you start like to, to actually like fundraise uh, to keep doing this? It, it's funny when you, when you start it and you plant that first seed mm-hmm. um, that it grows very quickly and more people said, you know, I want to participate in this, especially since it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. It's done between the government, 
that pr provides the teachers, mm -hmm. uh, the villagers who provide the labor, mm -hmm. the charity that's in country that can provide a foreman and engineers who know how to do the work. And then it just needs the funds to buy the materials. Wow. So you basically Everyone like to come and see their school and cut the ribbon and see how grateful um, the people, the family are. Yeah. 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 So you build one and you, you, you already like give money to, to the second one. And by the second one, you already have money to build another one. And yeah. um, did you thought at that moment that you were going to be able to build 50, plus 50 more schools? Actually, um, when I put a budget together to form the 501c3 approved charity, I so underestimated <laughs> <laughs> we would be able to fundraise because I wasn't thinking that so many people would also want to do the same thing. I had no idea. Wow. And very quickly we built um, school number three. And then um, sadly, um, school number four was, was my mom's um, memorial school because mm. my mom passed away a year after um, she built the first school mm -hmm. and she went to that inauguration. And before she passed away, I was taking care of her and mm -hmm. I took a leave of absence from work. And I said to her mom, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this without you. And she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, you won't be doing it without me. She goes, I'm always going to be right there. Wow. And I can't imagine that I did this by myself. It was mom's planting that seed and her inspiration. Yeah. Or doing the first two schools and giving me the courage to carry on, knowing that doors would open if I was going in the right direction. Yeah. And mom would be there. It is here again. Yeah. Wow. Wow. She teach you how to how to give to people and and she ended up like giving way more than I think that she one time probably thought that she will be she will be. and continues because the schools will continue like like allowing kids to learn and and probably thrive in their lives. Wow. Absolutely. And when my mom passed away and I went to see school number four, um, both school number one and number four um, put memorials in the schoolyard. And I put my mom's ashes there. And there's a plaque and a tree that's growing in both schoolyards. And when my, my father passed away in 2014, I added some of his ashes there as well. Mm -hmm. So the people were so honored. They couldn't believe that my parents wanted their ashes in Guatemala in their village at their school. But there is definitely a connection when you've adopted that village. And yeah. <laughs> And those are your, her grandchildren, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. It's an amazing, amazing story. And it's just the beginning of 
more, we are just like in the number three. Uh, and what was next? What happened next? Well, actually, um, while we were there for um, May of 2005, when we went to see school number two, um, we had learned about the need for vented stoves. And there was a charity that had invented this um, special stove because the people cook on open fires. And the open fire is right inside their house. Um, there's smoke throughout the house. Mm -hmm. They're breathing it in. Children get burned. Their clothes catch on fire. Um, they're deforesting the land because it burns so much wood. And this charity had invented this special stove that vents all that smoke out and uses less wood. Mm -hmm. And it's also contained so children don't get burned. Yeah. So um, mom sponsored 50 of those stoves in uh, school number one's village. Mm -hmm. And we were there in May um, to see those stoves going in. And actually the women installed their own stoves, which wow. I love that because, yeah. you know, together if it breaks <laughs> you're gonna know how to fix it yeah 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 of course wow uh, i have a photo of the stoves and mom and i are inside the house and there's these women from that village and mom doesn't speak a word of spanish and the women don't sp speak any english and so mom's going like this she goes thumbs up she goes stoves great and the women are looking at her and they start using the same motion uh -huh. showing thumbs up and everybody started laughing and i snapped a photo of them all around the stove with their thumbs in the air and every time i go to that village the women give me the thumbs up <laughs> wow wow that's amazing well, we are over an hour right now in the in the podcast. Um, so I think that we should leave the first one here. And if someone else, if someone that is listening right now want to keep hearing and learning about your stories, uh, we will be recording more of these um, amazing stories and a lot of like funny and good moments that I know that you have. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that was the Happy List Podcast, episode number one. If you enjoy it and want to know more about Miracles in Action, the charity that Penny founded with her mom, check out the next episode and consider to follow Miracles in Action on Facebook and visit the website miraclesinaction.org.